Welcome back to the Lion Podcast. My name is Aaron Alexander. This is a place that we bring together the world's leading experts in all things health and wellness to help you optimize your mind, body, and movement. This conversation was a very valuable one, especially in regards to the time. It's very germane to the times. I just learned that word, germane. Very excited about using it here. Today's conversation was with my friend, Ashley Stahl. Ashley has a background in counterterrorism. She worked with the Pentagon for several years, preventing bad guys from doing bad things. And we got to get into some of that in this conversation. She had a pretty major pivot or transition in her career, where now she is a career coach. She is a regular columnist for Forbes. She's been featured all over the place, including Wall Street Journal, Huffington Post, Time, Newsweek, Fast Company, Fox. She's great. Check out her TED Talk as well. She is an inspirational figure, and I'm so grateful to get to have shared some time with her. This conversation is just so especially relevant for now. So many people are going through such transitions in their lives and their careers, and I think it is incredibly valuable to enjoy, appreciate, find purpose in the work that we do in the world. We spend most of our time sleeping and working, ultimately. So if we're not sleeping well, if we're not working well, then what the heck are we doing here? So this conversation gets into really defining what it is that lights you up and uh, how we can start to pivot or transition our lives into that space with more regularity. Thank you so much for reviews on the iTunes or Spotify, or if you listen to this, thanks for grabbing the Align Method book. If you have, it's such a cool thing to get to be a, a part of y'all's growth in your physical experiences. So if that book has helped you, I appreciate you sharing it on the gram or you know, center of you, whatever you do. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Here we go. Back to the program with my girl, Ashley Stahl. Pow. I share OCD tendencies. I feel like you have no OCD tendencies. How could anybody... No, I'm highly OCD. Are you kidding me? What are you kidding? You don't wear shoes. Like, people who don't wear shoes aren't allowed to say it's they true. have My OCD. My feet are disgusting. Yeah, come on. No. <laughs> you don't get to say you have OCD if you don't wear shoes. No, it's just... not like a disorder, but I have tendency. I feel like everybody has tendencies, but you, like, have a, like... What is that? A guitar banjo, like hanging? What is that? That would be an ukulele. A ukulele. Yes. You have a fucking ukulele hanging in your house. <laughs> You're thinking about making a plant wall. You walk across the street with no shoes. You have no OCD. You're just a human. What is the originations of OCD? My sense is it would perhaps come from a, a sensation of feeling out of control and then seeking some type of like external validation of feeling like I'm in control of my environment. Yeah, it's like a safety thing. Like, I feel safer if, like, I check that I lock the door or something. I don't know. Have you dealt with things of this sort in your, in I your world? I think my dad's side has some, like, mental illness. But, and I feel like it got diluted by the time it hit me. Mm, oh, good. And so I have, like, little remnants where I'm like, oh, my God, there's definitely a family member who's all in with this little thing that is annoying to me. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? I do know what you mean. Yeah, just like a little shred. Little feather in the in the wind. How was your experience with creating this, birthing this new book in relation to... Getting all of the the your socks well ironed and organized. Oh no, and no, I don't have Getting that. the floor swept and whatnot during writing. Well, first of all, cleanliness I value, but <laughs> it's more about clutter. Like I can have a lot of things in my input in my eye, oh. but I can like throw a bunch of jumbled stuff in the closet, and as long as I don't see it, it's not happening. Oh god, that doesn't get me. I understand this. Yeah, do you? I 
yes, and I have a regular clearing of that stuff, and it feels very gratifying. My my preference is to have a internal map of like all of the shit in my in my reality. Mm. So if there is a a box just filled with, you know. <laughs> All the disgruntled, disorganized, yeah. chaotic stuff. I know we don't see it, but I know, and it's like a little—it's like a little prick inside of my mind. All right, all right. Fair so I, I eventually will end up getting after it. So you did a book. I wrote a book. Congratulations! Thank you. Is it? Uh, how was the experience putting it together? Uh, it took me longer than most people because I changed my book deal around and ended up refunding my original publisher. Yeah, but. I feel like I needed that extra time. And what's so weird about it is that even though I got the book deal three years ago, it really came together in the last like four months of writing the book where I got clarity. And it's tough because I feel like you could relate. Like there's so many days where I would stare at the blank screen with the cursor Mm -hmm. and the whole day I would carve out for writing the book would just go nowhere. Like I just couldn't get words out of my fingers. Yeah, I genuinely felt like I just learn that the creative process requires you to have those days where you just can't get anything out of your fingers. Mm -hmm. And I stopped seeing those days as a waste of time or a loss. And I started seeing them as just part of the process as a writer or as any creative. And I feel like any judgment you have on the days that you're not outputting, it's like, we're not a walking assembly line. We're not a walking robot. Like being human looks like, and creating great work looks like having three days that you stare at the cursor and nothing comes out of you. Yeah. And then yet at, in Bali, five in the morning, I woke up with inspiration and wrote the entire introduction from my book in like a half hour. It was 1,500 words yeah. that just flew out of me. So it's like just realizing that what process looks like and having patience and trusting yourself to be able to keep creating something, that was huge for me writing this book. And perhaps those moments are a incredibly valuable incubation period of sorts for those ideas to be able to to spawn and germinate and come to life. Yeah. Because I, I think that I'm reading a book right now uh, by a guy called David Epstein called Range. Mm-hmm. And it, one of the, the topics that it gets into, which relates directly to your book, is the the value of giving yourself spaciousness and time and you know incubation period in order to allow different seemingly disparate ideas to kind of come together and aggregate to eventually be able to coalesce into something meaningful as opposed to the kind of argument they make in there is early specialization can lead to long-term. You you won't go as far if you don't have that incubation period to be able to collate all those different ideas. So if you start golfing at a young age and that's your whole thing. Blinds you. Yeah, or or a musical instrument. Like it's, it's a great idea to play the, piano and the kazoo and the yeah. drum and all that and then eventually you come into the thing that you attain mastery with because it's like the perfect match fit for you. Yeah. And I think this it it does relate with careers as well. People that specialize too early sometimes they can almost have like a stunted growth compared to the person that seems like oh they're off course, they're crazy all over the place. Yeah. But they're they're giving themselves that time to create they're that perfect match fit mm-hmm. in order to really sink their passion into. I love this. I wish I saw this research before I wrote my book because it's just validating a lot of argument I have. And I think one of the most damaging little sweet spots that people have in their career based on how they show up, they can really misstep if there's such a thing, is when they're in between with where they are and where they're going. Mm -hmm. Like your relationship with that in between, I think is where a lot of either damage or clarity can happen. I think the people who are holding on to a plan for the sake of it 
or they're yearning for an answer mm -hmm. in their career, or they realize they have that residue of like, I don't like my job or I don't like my business. If you're reaching for something and it's not, it's not to say that you need to be a perfectionist and grab on the perfect next idea, but if you're just reaching for the sake of reaching and having an identity of something, there's so much damage there versus seeing that in between space as like a calibration experimental period where you're going to try things on. And sometimes it means you have to like change your business or your job. But most of the time, it just means that you need to have conversations, collect information, reflect. And like, even for me as an entrepreneur, whenever my business gets like boring, for lack of a better term, wherever I feel like there's a plateau, which I'm very rarely bored because I'm constantly like stimulating myself with all sorts of different ideas and things. But I always think to myself like, oh, wow, I need to just have another conversation. I just need to talk to more people because this is the fastest path for me to reflecting. And I feel like what we're doing in our careers or what a lot of people get in their job is kind of the equivalent, like on this idea of this research you're sharing from the range book, is the equivalent of saying like the first person you meet and date, like you need to marry. Yeah. And that's like what we're doing to people with their job as a society. We're saying like the first thing that you find, you should be going upwards with it. And it's like, what are you talking? We're not linear as humans. This approach doesn't make sense and I feel like that research you're sharing is very much like an idea of being narrow-minded versus experimental. It's the and. It's like I'm holding this mastery and I'm not so short-sighted or narrow-minded that I'm not going to open up to the vastness of who I am and the options that are out there for me and the conversations I could be having to explore what might look like a different version of this thing. Yep. And I think that's the biggest thing is most people are just a couple millimeters off in their career. If they don't like something, but they like other things that got them there in the first place, it's like usually you don't need to completely rework. You just need to kind of um, tweak. Yeah. I think life can be quite confusing because how does one know when you need to stick it out in this relationship to get to the good stuff or stick it out with this job or this idea? I think Malcolm Gladwell was good about kind of like spearheading that idea. Maybe it was Seth Godin. I think it was Malcolm Gladwell. I think he's got a whole book about it, actually. But a key to being successful is knowing when to quit mm -hmm. and knowing when, you know, letting go of that, that the, the sunk cost fallacy or whatever that term mm -hmm. is. Is it sunk cost, cost fallacy? Yeah, or, it's or a theory, theory of sunk theory, cost. Theory, whatever yeah. it is. Yeah. And that's something I, I see with myself. If I sink so much time and energy into a thing, I can get to a point where I almost just close my eyes and say, like, fuck it, I'm going to keep on going because I put too much into it, mm -hmm. which I think that can be, uh, that can be really problematic. Yeah. You know, so how does one know mm -hmm. whether the sunk cost is worth it? It's time to bail. It's time to keep going. Is there any kind of... Yeah, yeah. I love that question because I feel like it's the number one thing, right? Like people who go to medical school, they're like, I spent a quarter million dollars to have this degree and now yeah. I don't want to be a doctor. Are you kidding me? Right. Here's the thing. Like your career is decades. Like you're going to be here, especially with the way that things are going with research. We're going to live longer. So it's going to be decades on decades. Like most people in the retirement age right now is getting later. So... If you are in your 40s right now, you still got three decades left. So if you're going to hold yourself hostage based on four years of an investment for decades to follow, like that actually doesn't make sense. That's number one. That's and, and number two, your degree is here to serve you. You're not here to serve it. Your experience, mm -hmm. it's here to serve you. Like you get to use it and do something with it. You don't become a slave to your experience and make something fit, you know, try to make a square fit into a circle or whatever that expression is. Yeah. And I think even further than that is realizing, and I think this is the biggest misunderstanding, is that there is a way to make sense of where you've been in the past 
with where you're headed in the future. And I think it's on the job seeker, if you're in the workforce, it's on the entrepreneur to figure out an elevator pitch and a narrative that makes sense of their pivot. But I think the biggest, um, I hate, it's such, such a harsh word to say failure, but I think the biggest failure with people not making that change is not learning how to talk about that pivot, not learning how to see what are the core skill sets that I've been using in the past that are super relevant to where I'm going. I had a doctor who was a client who didn't want to be a doctor anymore, which is why I think this example is coming up. And she loves fashion. She was a multifaceted human, which I feel like we all are in a lot of ways, you know? And she, here's the thing, like, your skill set to me as a career expert is so much more relevant than your interest. Like if you're interested in self-help or if you're interested in film or politics or whatever, that's a backdrop. That's the room you're standing in. That's the conversations happening around you. But what's more important is your skill set. Like are you using your words throughout the day? Are you selling? Are you a fitness trainer? Do you value motion? Like do you need to be physical? What your skills are, where you have a natural zone of genius, that counts to me more than your interest. What you're passionate about, what you love, that stuff matters, but it's totally secondary mm. to who you are, what your skills naturally are. So I would say when it comes to the question of should I stay, should I go, I think the bigger question to ask is what is my core skill set? I have 10 that I talk about in chapter two of my book and I could go into those Please. for sure. Yeah. yeah. But once you get clear on what those skill sets are and you choose what one you sit in. And everybody out of the 10 that I've come up with based on the past decade of research I've done, out of the 10, people will usually say, oh, I kind of identify with three or four of these. It's like, yeah, but you lead with one and you're a genius at one. And when you really tap into that one, and there's many ways to express a skill set, you know, like my core skill set is words. You probably have that one as well because you're, you know, very vocal with, you know, having a podcast, having a book, putting things out there that rely on your ability with words. And that informs my career. So for the person who's making a change, I would say once you get clear on that, learn how to talk about your core skill set in your next position so that you can make that relevant, carry the thread of the past into the future. If you aren't using your core skill set, that's the clarity. And being able to talk to people about some skill sets you've used that are very relevant to where you're going and letting them know you have clarity that this is where you're at your best and they need that, that's where you're making an impact. So for the note takers, I would say core skill set, since I already talked about words, we can just say is words. So that is the writers, the speakers, the authors on the entrepreneurial side. It's also in the workforce, the content creators, it's the editors. I'm trying to think what else there is. Oh my gosh, I love that you use like massage tools as your podcast. I'm a complete weirdo. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I didn't notice that about you. <laughs> I've been around you like long enough. <laughs> Not everybody has like an acrobat swing right when you walk in. Yeah. Like I know you're in like Venice, Santa Monica, so you yeah, kind of were like, oh, that's normal. The, it's the not. quintessential. It is. It is. Venice. You slants and an acrobat swing and a massage tool. <laughs> what was the movie with the, they go to Hawaii and the guy can't, there's, there's the surfer bro guy and they're getting and married and Russell like Brand's in it. Fifty first dates. Yeah, I think I'm kind of like that, like archetypal <laughs> Venice guy. Yeah, I you know, like get Russell, it. who who whoever the surfer guy was. I, I I'm kind of like that, but for Venice. Oh my gosh, <laughs> you are. You have a lot of Venice vibes. When I see you coming with your no shoes, I'm like, fuck that. Well, I wear shoes in, outside. Yeah. Oh no, today maybe. No, I was wearing shoes. Yeah, but I've seen you many times in an outside setting, and I have no judgment. I just enjoy it. I'm okay, like, this okay. is really. I, I appreciate that. Yeah, because you it's have to kind. know, obviously, that most people are wearing shoes. Like, That's a good point. Do you know? So it's kind of like, oh, there's there's something, you know, there's a pattern interrupt happening and it's you. The big thing is I'm not 
going out of my way to do it to be on brand. No. I promise. You're being yourself. It really feels better. No, you're not like those kids in high school that are like, I'm going to be unique and dress emo, but really you're not unique because everybody's emo. That's not not you. Yeah, yeah. Well, I appreciate it. You're you. That's very kind of you. You're a special brand of person. (laughs) Like, I already know. So, like, you're not... You're very special. As Thank well. you. <laughs> you know, I do kind of have like. I think like, we some balance each stuff. other. We're, we yeah. kind of have like a polarity thing. Well, because I'm neurotic and you're grounded. Mm. You know what I mean? What? I mean, I'm I'm like selectively I would say spiritual. Le- yeah, yeah. Whereas I'm kind of like just ballistic, amorphous, kind of floating. Yeah. Floating jello. Well, you're like <laughs> flying into the sky, but then like your shoeless feet are on the ground. That's right. You know what I mean? I'm just on the ground over here. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, slightly neurotic, but like totally great. And you come from a background of uh, counterterrorism. Yeah. It's, we'll talk about skill sets. So that. <laughs> so I started my career in national security, which has given me a huge stick up my ass, yeah. probably, and a value of justice and integrity and doing the right thing and protecting. So I think I grew up with a natural desire to protect people. I think that comes from my family. Mm. So I had a little brother who, he's really smart. I mean, he's, I still have a little brother. He's 30 now and I'm 33. So we're, he's not really a little brother. He's younger than me, but. What's your birthday? I'm not uh, going to ask May your sign. May 29th. Okay. Yeah. July. You're July. So you're a Leo. Yeah. 87. Yeah. So every Same minute as... of me, I'm 87. Yeah. yeah. No, I know. That's why. Yeah, yeah. I, was, oh, I was yeah, like, yeah. what if we came out of the, uh, our mother's yonis at the same moment? Mother's yonis. I've never heard a man say the word yoni and it's incredible. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> this episode can literally. It's the only go word I think is appropriate for vagina. Vagina sounds like some type of throat illness. I just say vag. Oh. You don't like that? So gross. Yoni? People's name are, is Yoni. There's Yoni. people out there that their name is Yoni. Do you think the guys from Israel that are named Yoni are thrilled that we are referencing a vag? Punani? Oh, that's even worse. <laughs> that's the worst one that you Continue. Okay. You were fighting so the good fight. So speaking of skill sets. Yeah. <laughs> so for the note takers, words can be number one. One thing to ask yourself is, are you an introvert? Yeah. Or are you an extrovert? Because if you're the words core skill set, for example, the external way of using that could be in the workforce, like a business development person, a talent agent, somebody who's using words to turn it into money in their bank account. Like that skill they have is translating. The introverts are going to use words as if they are writers. Their process is going to be more internal and they're going to die in a job that requires them to be peopling the whole day, yeah. for lack of a better term. I don't think that's a real word, but no, you know no, what I mean. So you probably have words as a core skill set. You also have motion as a core skill set. That's another core skill set that I have. The motion skill set is the people who are down to be on their feet or they want to be in motion in some way. It could be a tour guide. It can be a fitness trainer. It can be somebody who, you know, their expertise is around motion. Your little acrobat swing here is a real giveaway. (laughs) You value motion. You value flexibility. There's a skill in that. Like some people can't be moving like you can, and it's not natural, and it's not a zone of genius for them. Another skill set, talk about the Pentagon, is analysis. So the analysis core skill set is so much more about the researchers, the people who are obsessed with answering the question why. They like to collect information. They're detail-oriented, the economists. So for me at the Pentagon in my early 20s, I was sitting in the analysis skill set. That was what was expected of me. That's who I had to be to produce the results. And if I look back, I did an A minus B plus job. Obviously, in the government, an A minus B plus for me is like an A plus because there's a lot of like low performance happening in the government. Like they don't fire people, they just reassign them, which is like really terrifying. But. You know, I did a great job in my job. I got good feedback and I wasn't working in my skill set. So I was drained. 
You know, I was drained. The, the job was asking me to be somebody I'm not. Yeah. And if anybody listening right now is overriding who they are to perform in their job and deliver the results, that's just not sustainable. And that's why you don't like your job. That's like one of the number one reasons people don't like it. I will say, if you're working outside of your core skill set, figure out what it is and learn how to talk about the ways in your job. Like if your job is a pie and 80% of the time you're not doing something that aligns with where you're great, find that 20% where they are calling forward that core skill set for you, where you have a gift and learn how to talk about that in your next position. Because your resume is a game of real estate. It's a marketing document. It's not somewhere that you like vomit everything you've ever done. So if you can look at your resume and say, all right, you know, even though 20% of my job was me using the skill that is really relevant to the next thing that is relevant to me, I'm going to make like 70% of my resume if I can about this skill that is relevant for my next thing. So you've got words, you've got motion, you've got analysis. Another core skill set is service, number four. That one is about being a helper, a humanitarian, a nurturer. The problem with the service core skill set for people who think, yep, that's me, is you just need to ask yourself, like, is that coming from trauma or wounding or is that truly inspired? Because, and I would ask that question for any of the skill sets, along with whether you're an introvert or an extrovert. Because if you're coming from wounding, usually you just learned how to be a people pleaser out of necessity and it's not who you are and it's not your, it's a skill set you forced yourself to hone and that you have a natural ability with now. And it can be both, you know, you could have some trauma that's also informed a skill set, but it's important to just know that. Another skill set is building. So the building core skill set can be quite literal. I mean, these are all just not only tactical, but they're energy fields that you kind of live in. So the builder can be literal, like a construction worker, a mechanic, and can be more figurative, like um, a web designer or somebody who's, you know, building something in theory. Another skill set, number six, I would say is innovation. That core skill set is for the intrapreneur or the entrepreneur. That's the person who's the creative problem solver who is usually second in command or they'll rise in the ranks quickly because the entrepreneur needs it in their company. They need somebody who's highly creative and visionary like them. Mm. And I think the difference is the entrepreneurs usually will be their own boss if they have a visceral pain around freedom, like they need creative freedom, they need time freedom, and they have a very good relationship with risk and financial risk. So I think those are the kind of a couple indicators that will make you channel the innovation skill set one way or the other the intra or entrepreneur route. Another core skill set I would say is numbers. I mean, the, the number crunchers. I think that might have been eight. Is it eight? I thought. Yeah. I'm, I'm, not, a a num- I'm not a number guy. I, you and I both. Like, <laughs> I mean, I lost so much money in my business because I didn't know how to just add. You know? When were you losing money in your business? Well, my business did about $5 million in two months. And I had this crazy experience I read about in my book where I was failing for a really long, I mean, not failing, but I was just not succeeding yeah. the way I wanted to sure. for a long time. And I spent a lot of money and I was in a lot of debt trying to get my course out there. And then one day my webinar on the internet worked and it just became an ATM and money just started falling from the sky. And I just got 7,000 customers in what felt like overnight. Cool. And um, I didn't know how to manage money. I was scared I was going to lose all my money. So I had a dad who lost all his money and I learned at a young age, like, don't do that. And so the fear of not doing it made me do it. So I did all this stuff out of the fear of losing money to make sure I didn't lose money, like hiring lawyers and turning off my funnels and taking a pause to make sure everything was quote unquote right. Mm. You know, the justice valuing integrity Pentagon 
working girl in my early 20s, wanted to make sure my business was... Why would you turn up funnels as in like email funnels, I'd imagine? My email funnels, my webinar, my ads, because lawyers were like, look, you're making so much money. We need to make sure that you're playing by the rules here because when you scale an online business, there's a lot more consumer rules. Right. And I was scared. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Turned it off, hired a team of 10 to support it. And then by the time the lawyer said, you're good... I turned it back on and the ad algorithm had changed. Mm. And I kept my team alive for about a year, just paying a lot of overhead for everybody. And I couldn't figure it out. I couldn't figure out how to make my work, my ads profitable anymore. Interesting. Yeah. So just I the, just... The, the faucet turned off. The faucet turned off. How fascinating. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of things that they say with entrepreneurs who... I don't know. It's like we say, if you did it once, you could do it again. Sure. But I think the real thing should be... If you did it once in that way, there's got to be another way for you to do it again because competition, the market changing, new tools, saturation. What were the the overarching principles that brought you to the ideas that you were able to form based off of the present yeah, that's scenario? Yeah, question. You know, so it's it's not so much okay, cool. I did those specific actions A, B, K, J, D. I yeah. figured it out. It's like, you know, what brought you to that formula? I think it was believing in something, and I think I was in a lot of manifestation, like the principles and law of attraction principles. That, like I said, I'm kind of selectively spiritual, so. I'm spiritually open, but then sometimes I'm like, well, that's too far. Yeah, we went from like Pentagon anti-terrorism, linear yeah. Welcome OCD to... Welcome to my inside of my brain. The secret. Yeah. Well, you know what? Before I even do that, let me look. I can give people a list who are listening because I have a whole list right here of these skill sets because these are important. So let's just say for my note takers, one is building, two is innovation, three is words, four is motion, five is service, six is analysis, seven is numbers, Eight is technology, you know, straight up, the artificial intelligence. Nine is coordination. This one we forgot. Mm. The people who coordinate everything, bless their heart. Like, I couldn't even put my life together without them. It's a salience network in the brain. Yeah, I don't have that network. That one didn't work. Not working. Okay. And then 10 <laughs> is beauty. These are the people who just look amazing and they they create interior design or makeup artists. Whatever. I love those people. Yeah, I love those people. I, I actually them. have that. That's like my secondary one, but not my primary one. Mm. And you'll know because you'll see my place and be like, that's so beautiful. Except there's this like weird gash in it, you know? Can you give me any secret covert information about the government? Mm. <laughs> what? I mean, no, there's like, I'm so looped out. When I was aliens. In, I want to talk about aliens. Oh my God, you really are the Venice representative. <laughs> You and your aliens. I mean, I do believe there's life on other planets, but... I thought Trump was coming out with some... Wasn't he... There was some kind of information that it was part of like the COVID bill, something or another, but like apparently they're going to talk about aliens in the next three months, and the aliens said that we got to do that. I probably heard that at Erwan. Oh my God, you <laughs> super heard that in line at Air. Anything you hear in line at Erwan, I respect. No, this is real. But I quite... Just a, take FDR's approach, like Roosevelt's thought, like trust but verify. You know what I mean? Mm. Especially in line at Erwan. Praise Allah or trust in Allah, but uh, lock up your teepee. Hold on, now that's some conflated conflated cultures. (laughs) Tie up your camel. Oh my gosh, yeah, that's a good one. That's an old Sufi saying. Oh, I'm like, that's cool. Yeah, like you going into the trust in Allah, but tie up your camel. All right, I've never heard that one. I feel like all these cultures don't do that. Okay, that's very Venice too. Is to just be like, I'm gonna get this tattoo. I need to remember it. No. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I need 
I'm like, your little statement is a post-it on the wall. That's not a tattoo on your stomach. Thank you. Yeah. Don't cast pearls before swine. That's a post-it on my wall right now. Why do you have that on there? What does that mean? I like to try to remember things. And so what does that mean? That's a biblical statement. Okay. Don't cast pearls amongst swine. Essentially means if people don't want to listen, don't force your ideas upon them. Oh, I love that. And it ends up actually for several reasons. One, it's just a waste of your, your life and energy, but it also degrades the quality of your ideas and yourself because now you're putting yourself into a place where people are kind of, you know, they don't give a shit. And so now that idea loses power. So save the idea for people that will actually be able to, you know, masticate, digest. Enjoy. Yeah, well, I mean, if you are in judgment on somebody, you're not going to have an influence on them. It's the opposite. Do you know what I mean? If you're judging somebody, mm. you're not going to influence them. That's a Martin Luther King quote. Is it? Yeah. This is podcast, I mean, the most quotatious podcast. In, in I've months. never even heard that quote. I just think if that, you, that often. If you have contempt for a person, something along, paraphrase, something along the lines of if, if you have contempt for a person, you'll never be able to, I don't know, create peace, have a conversation, be able to, I don't know. See, he said something along the lines like if, if there is some kind of subconscious contempt towards a person, mm-hmm. There is no conversation. Yeah. So first you have to come from the place of how do I find compassion and actually truly put myself into this person's shoes, i.e. like present political situation. Yeah. It would be really great if we could do that more often. Yeah. Um, because if you're going into this scenario having that contempt, then the, the foundation isn't there. Yeah, it's kind of like when I what I was thinking about when people were invading the Capitol building, whatever that day was. Right. I was just thinking like when you're – and then there's people against those people, which I get, you know, but – when you're in againstness, againstness, you just are againstness, and then you're just the same thing, mm-hmm. which is, you know, not productive. Why did the Senate get raided? You know, I mean, I've been looped out of politics for a hot minute because I think I had a hangover after I worked in it. But I will say that back in 2010 when I was training at the FBI, they used to say— It's such a cool thing that you can say that, by the way. Really? Yeah. I, You know— For me, it was like back in 2010 when I was like homeless in Kicking my ass. Hawaii. <laughs> Totally Chasing around scenario. punanis or whatever you call <laughs> that shit. <laughs> That's amazing. Very different background. Yeah. No, I I remember they used to say, because I studied, my master's was in Islamic, well, it was in international relations, and then my emphasis was extremism. That's mm. what I just studied. Mm. And, you know, I think I just got that master's to hide from the world, which is something I talk about in the book. Like, don't get a graduate degree as a socially acceptable way to just hide from the world, like it's not productive unless you have an intention behind it mm. or you have a ton of cash and you just want to be a student for life, in which case go for it. I would totally join you, you yeah. know? But um, yeah, I remember at the FBI, they used to say, look, you guys have all studied extremism. We need you to understand the number one security threat in the United States is not an Islamic extremist attack on a mall. It's, it's a neo-Nazi white supremacist. Mm. How fast? It's been 10 years that this has been the threat and there's been little like, uprisings, if you start to look into it, you'll see like in Indiana, there'll be like a Sikh temple and a weird shooting and there's races. I mean, white power and that whole movement is terrifying and it's real. And I think that what we are seeing right now, you're saying, why did it happen? It's because this group has been hanging out for a while. And I do think that, I don't know, we're all just like a bunch of little fruit gushers, you know, like when life kind of corners us, like stuff comes out of us. And I think society has cornered us, like having a pandemic, having the Black Lives Matter movement, having Donald Trump, there's a lot of divisiveness in our society and the political parties are more rifted than ever before. Yeah. You know, there used to be kind of a middle 
doesn't really feel like that. Even though people are in the middle, people actually have a lot of opinions that are very much so one side or the other. Certainly. So I think that that just creates like a little fruit gusher vibe in society where we're all just squeezing out stress and attacking the Capitol building. But what I will say is really terrifying about it for me is one thing I learned working in the government is that there's processes. So if you want to make a bill into a law or you want to make a concept happen, there's a process. But when you change a norm, when society's cultural norms change, that's very hard to go back from. So we have not had it as a norm for people to invade our political building and our political representatives. That's just not an American norm. That's yeah. shit you see in Iraq. That's stuff you see in Bahrain. That's not here. And I just have different friends in the government, and this is no secret, but there, I am seeing that this population does have uh, some things that I learned that ISIS has, some of the ways that they're coordinating, like selecting military personnel and the way that they're recruiting does feel very much like a terrorist group, but... What was your day-to-day like when you were doing the, the counterterrorism stuff? What is the term? Counterterrorism? Yeah. Right? Yeah. I worked a lot in international development as well. Like, the program that I worked on was, it was taking the government's best civilians, the highest performing civilians, the most senior people in the different government institutions, and sending them to Afghanistan to help in the Ministry of Defense and Interior during the time when, I don't know if anybody remembers this, because, I mean, who remembers things unless you're in, in it, where we were in Afghanistan. We had, you know, boots on the ground there. And we were pulling out, and NATO was helping us pull out. My job was to help the transition. So I was deploying people, and I was in charge of making sure they knew what they needed to know to deploy to Afghanistan and be seamless. And there was this thing going on in Afghanistan at the time, and I write about this in the book, because a lot of the book was me processing having worked in counterterrorism And I I knew that a book of me just saying, like, I worked in this and this is my memoir and I'm 33 isn't that interesting. Maybe it's a little bit, but not enough to make it your time, you know? And so that's why I turned it into an 11-step formula to figure out your career path. I didn't do 12 steps because it felt like AA. I had a a 12 thing, so I just kind of wove it in. But that was what made me do it. And so one thing that I did process was there was this thing called insider attacks happening. So I started deploying people and teaching them. And I wasn't their teacher. I just hired people to teach them. And a lot of it was intelligence and counterterrorism stuff to make sure they're safe in the country. And we taught them how to transition into a country. And one thing that started happening was this thing called insider attacks, where instead of them being paired with somebody in the Ministry of Interior or Defense out there and helping each other better govern so that the transition of us pulling out was smoother... What was happening is they would come to work and their counterpart would shoot them in the head. So it's insider attacks. Mm. And so I would deploy people and just, you know, hope that they were okay. So the counterpart was like a spy or something? No, it was just somebody who wasn't down with the American government being a part of their process, you know? Oh, the counterpart, it was, they were from the other country. Yeah. Okay, I thought like they were in like, the, like inside on the No, same. so we were pairing our officials with high-level officials in their government to I teach see. them what we knew and yeah. for them to plan with us to exit their country. And they don't want us there in the first place, a lot of them. You, know? you ever heard of the book Economic Hitman? Uh-uh. Oh, I'd be very interested in hearing your, your perception of it. Essentially, the, apparently Economic Hitman is, is, a, is a, a term. There might be some other term they use, but that's, like the, I think, the slang term for this position in the government. And I think it's essentially like an ambassador of the United States that goes over and negotiates deals. You know, we want something from your country. Hmm. And there's this tiered you know, five-step, four-step process that they go through where the first thing is like, okay, just give us the thing. Mm-hmm. You know, the next thing eventually turns into, I forget exactly what they were, but eventually, you know, the final thing would be, 
you know, assassination or there was like this step by step process of like eventually we're going to get the thing. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes it would turn into us creating an industry at that place, almost like, almost like pinning the country into this position where it's like, okay, we're going to create this industry there this whole infrastructure, we're going to build it, so we're going to get paid to create it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we already know, so this is this book, and this guy, and people can look up the book, that you're not going to be able to pay that back. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like set up for collapse, and then we will own you eventually. And it just goes through this whole... There's this whole a lot of argument about us in China and like the amount of bonds and you know that they own and the amount of real estate. and I mean, there's so much... I feel like that's such a fundamental government move. Yeah. And I don't feel very educated in politics. I don't even feel very educated anymore in counterterrorism. Like every five years, somebody in the workforce, a core skill set they have is going to become obsolete. It's not going to become relevant to tomorrow's world. And <laughs> I do feel like my degree in some way is kind of irrelevant. Like m- maybe not the skills I learned through getting the masters and stuff like that, but the content I learned. Um, yes, history repeats itself. It's cool to know history. But first of all, I'm human. What percent of memory do I have to really retain everything I learned? And number two, I studied Al-Qaeda. Like, when's the last time you heard somebody talk about Al-Qaeda? Never. Like, nobody talks about them anymore because we're too occupied with other things. Hmm. You know, so then it was ISIS. Now it's neo-Nazis and and the pandemic and Black Lives Matter. It's just different social issues. Want to take a moment and thank our sponsors. We're brought to you by our friends over at Element. Element creates some of the absolute hands down best water enhancement supplements that I know of. What the hell is a water enhancement supplement? It's a term that I made up. Essentially what they do is they have these delicious flavored packets, various different varieties that include a perfect blend of minerals to support your nervous system. Also make it so that your water is actually able to permeate your cells. So it includes sodium, potassium, magnesium. They come various different flavors, raspberry, citrus. My favorite personally is the cacao, which is a new version. It's very exciting. If you are interested in trying element for absolutely no cost. Well, you got to pay for shipping, five bucks for shipping. You can get yourself a free sampler pack that includes the raspberry, the citrus, the raw unflavored, and also the orange salt. And they'll send it right to your door. And if you end up purchasing any in the future, then you get a hundred percent money back guarantee if you're not absolutely in love with the product. So if you want to get yourself a free sampler pack to check it out, you can go to drinklmnt.com slash align. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T dot com slash align. And you will get yourself a sweet free sampler pack to check this stuff out. We are also brought to you by our friends over at Bio Optimizers. Biooptimizers has been a company that I have supported for many years. I stand behind their products, the sourcing of all of their ingredients, and I am especially excited to share the Cogna Biotics, which is something that I've taken myself and I find a lot of value in it. It's specifically geared towards mood enhancement via supporting your microbiome. So 90 to 95% of the serotonin in your brain, your body is created within your gut bacteria. Crazy. Also, quite a bit of dopamine is created in the same place, and uh, it's a pretty big deal. The things that you put into your face, the exposure that you have to, say, healthy soil, getting out in nature, being around animals, kissing people that you want to be kissing, exposing yourself to the world is one of the most important ways to support your microbiome, your health, your happiness, your longevity, all of those things. Cognibiotics is a perfect blend of prebiotics and probiotics to support the internal jungle that is your gut. So if you want to get yourself 10% off, 
to see how this stuff impacts you, you can go to biooptimizers.com slash align. That's B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com slash align. And you get yourself 10% off on that mother flipping purchase. If you don't love it, they'll give you 100% money back, guarantee, no questions asked, no big deal. Try it out. You got your whole cognitive function, happiness, longevity, and all things to gain. And you got absolutely nothing to lose. So check it out. Bioptimizers.com slash align. Here we go. Back to the program. Wow. What was your lens to go back to like the Martin Luther King paraphrased quote that I destroyed it's nothing at all like that what was your your relationship to al-qaeda while you were in that place of observation were you like was there contempt was there you know like what was your mind That's like? a really interesting question I mean I used to get intelligence reports all the time and I moved from the Pentagon to working in the private sector uh, providing intelligence to fortune 500 companies who operated around the world in high-risk areas so I would work with the government to get intelligence information and report to the CEOs of large companies and they would trickle it down to their staff. So my relationship, why this is relevant, is I used to get intelligence reports that would be like a terrorist trying to blow up a flea market, but then they accidentally detonated themselves. And that, like, I hate to admit this, but kind of, like, made me chuckle, which is kind of sad, like, as a human. I shouldn't be, like, laughing, but it did make me chuckle. Like, on your way to kill a bunch of people, you killed yourself and removed the problem for everybody today. Yeah. So I do think you get a little bit hardened working in that. Like, you have to put a coat around your heart like it hurts and I had some people deploy it didn't come home so you have to learn how to separate your emotions from your work and it's it's really a masculine thing I had to learn to compartmentalize because I feel like men are kind of like one switch you know the masculine at least it's on or off like they're focused or they're not and I feel like with women or the feminine energy I know I'm like very heteronormal right now but it feels like um we're like the NASA switchboard. You know what I mean? Like hmm. the, you turn on this button and yeah. it makes you feel good and then turn off and then you didn't turn on that one and now I'm not sure. And I, I feel like that in my life. I don't know. Yeah. My next curiosity with you is what what was it like in that? And we'll come back to the book as well. It's, yeah. it's just such an interesting thing. And it is the, the foundation is the for what brought you to the book. So mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's it all, opens it's, up it's all, my first all, day at the Pentagon. It's all relevant. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what was your experience as a, uh, to not offend anyone, a feminine person, mm-hmm. uh, but being a female in that situation, what was your experience with that? Was that like challenging? Were you trying? Was there kind of compensation that was that was happening? Where it's like, okay, I need to be mm-hmm. more masculine, or what mm-hmm. was? Did it feel comfortable? Yeah. Well, if you don't have military experience and you work at the Department of Defense, they're already kind of going to scoff at you. Mm. And so I was just this girl, like I kind of felt like Elle Woods, you know what I mean? Like I had a resume and I had my master's and I spoke foreign languages. So I was qualified from an educational standpoint and interested in high energy, which is what got me my job. Like I got a huge job opportunity as a contractor coming into the government because they kept having colonels in my role and they learned how to delegate in the military. And so they were doing a lot of delegating and they needed somebody who could do the whole job. So I came in like super peppy and hyper. And I handed my resume off to the head of my bureau in the department in, that I was in, in the Pentagon. And he kind of like scoffed at my resume. And so what I learned was like throw up and show up. You know, like I used to like go to the bathroom and literally get sick. I was so nervous and stressed and I felt eyeballs on me. 
And yet there were only a couple people in the government that made me feel kind of like that stereotype. And I opened my book up with my first day at the Pentagon where I wasn't given a desk by the guy that I worked with. And the guy that I worked with had the same job as me, but he was getting paid 17 grand more than me for the same job. And he made a joke on my first day that I write about where I was like, where's my desk? And he gave me this chair and was like, we don't have a desk for you yet. And you just need to earn it just like people in Afghanistan. Women have to earn their desk. And so I walked into sexism, but that's not normal. I actually feel like there's a lot of really good people working at the Department of Defense. Like I had a very positive experience with most people. I get that there's stereotypes and stuff like that. I did harden, but that was more for my own coping. And I do think we all come up with different coping mechanisms to survive our lives and the choices we make. And we stay in those things if they're kind of in that dangerous middle ground, like we're not miserable enough to make a change, but it's taking away or chipping away at a piece of who we are. And I think, you know, my wish for anybody listening to this podcast would be to realize like the middle ground and that lukewarm feeling is like an inner alarm that you can start to notice something's not syncing up for you. And can you do something about it? Or do you need to actually make a change? Can you spare yourself that misery a few moves down the board and start taking action right now and creating that in-between gap that we talked about of being creative, of collecting information? Because you can't collect information while you're closed you know, you need to be receptive and get into that state. So yeah, it definitely hardened me. I mean, nothing's going to harden you quite like really liking the people you work with and sending them on an airplane and then one doesn't come home. Hmm. How does a person have the self-awareness to be able to investigate in and actually determine that they, that they are hardened? And once they determine that, how does one start to to soften that and come into you know feeling safe or feeling yeah you know their their internal genius being able to whisper through because yeah. there's there's you know that the calluses have kind of worn off. I mean, my hardening was like an egg. Like you could probably crack me at any time. It was just like this little shell around me. But I think for most people, like even ritual, I think softens you. Hmm. For me, as a woman, at least, like coming home, taking a bath, like visualization like I kind of feel myself like when I walk into my house and I left the Pentagon like turning into butter like like feeling that energy like I'm softening here this is where I soften Mm. this is where I'm a human again and I think not choosing careers that continually make you harden and I think my career to go in the government is a misunderstanding that a lot of people also have a misunderstanding we have high impact moments in our lives that really affect us and affect our career choices. And I had one moment I wrote about where I was living in France for a while and I saw this guy hit his wife really hard in, a, in an alleyway. It was like pouring rain and I didn't live in Paris. I was outside in the West. And nobody was on the street and he was screaming at her and she had this baby crying. It was awful. And I was like sick watching it and I didn't know what to do. You know, I didn't want to get involved. I wanted to find a cop. Nobody was out, you know. He was yelling at a language I didn't understand. So I couldn't, I'm, I'm bilingual. So I couldn't even get to them in French. And the woman looked at me and she has this baby crying in her, like a kangaroo kind of pouch for her baby thing. And it was like, I wanted to save her and help her and protect her. But instead I just made a career decision about her. And it was that I'm going to protect people and I'm going to help. And because I had family on the East Coast during 9-11, it was like something about the wires in my brain just crossed. And I was like, I'm going to work in counterterrorism. And that's what happens for a lot of people in a different way. You know, maybe not my exact way. But you have these big moments in your life and you want to do something about them. And then you pull the closest idea you have that maybe is somewhat in line with it, but slightly off. And I think that is how we build our careers. You mentioned previously about the potential of making decisions based off of 
prior wounding. Yeah. Was, was that for you congruent with previous wounding, your, your, your choice to want to protect people? Yeah, I think, first of all, I had a sister. My, my big sister passed away a couple of years ago. So I had a, a sister who had drug addiction, and we did everything we could to help her, and eventually she was homeless. And I had a little brother who, like I was talking about, even though he's only a few years younger, he's always very much so felt like a little brother. And he was like a slower learner as a kid and needed to go in the special classes. Now he's like sharp as hell and like, you know, creating so much in his life. But something about the school system just didn't vibe for him, and he was a slower learner, and I was very protective of him. And so I think that protectiveness was very innate, and I think when you pair that with, I have an ability to make people really comfortable, and I don't always, it's not that I turn it on, but if I'm uncomfortable, I can't be me, you know? Mm -hmm. But it takes a lot to make me uncomfortable, you know? Like, people can be really weird and say weird stuff, and I can totally hold for it. And that was also, I think, me wanting to be a protector and me being great with people the pair made me think I could be a great spy and and do some good with my people skills. And to be candid, I've coached spies in my private practice ever since who are trying to figure out where they belong, you know, and they, they appreciate me having been in the government because I can see them and get it. And they have incredible people skills just like I do. It, it, we have so much chemistry because they are so amazing at having conversations, at being fascinating, at making me comfortable, at making me interested and I'm like, oh my gosh, I totally was onto something choosing this career path because I see me in you. I see your skills in mine. What's the raw materials for a good spy and how does one develop their abilities to be a better spy and would it be helpful to be a sociopath? Uh, no, I think, I think you can't be a sociopath because you have to feel people to be able to get through to them. You know, like you really, I'm sure there's some sociopaths, but I don't see them thriving as much as the empaths. Because what you're really doing is you're going around the world, you're creating a relationship with somebody and turning them against their state for information. Hmm. So you have to be so connected to someone and you have to have had them confide in you to be able to say, this is actually who I am. You're making a risk. You're risking your life saying that. And I'm asking you to go against where you live and share information with me and use what you know to help me with this cause. So you have to have incredible people skills and you have to be really good at managing your nervous system, you know, because you will be put, I don't think that being in intelligence requires you to always be kind of like on this, like, you know, a car is chasing you thing. Yeah. A lot of the time, I think you're just in a, behind your computer collecting information on a phone. Sure. You know, assessing information, advising people. But, you know, I don't think it's as sexy as the TV makes it. I think the missions that the television shows is one little piece and you absolutely have to manage your nervous system. So I think people skills and nervous system management are probably the two and adventure, a sense of adventure. How does one cultivate the, the people skills part specifically if your intention is to be an undercover spy slash natural. I think you're born with it. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I think you can learn to like, (laughs) if you've got like some weird personality traits that aren't working, like if you have no filter and that's like hurting people's feelings, like you can Mm. cultivate that and, But I think you have to be born with like people liking to talk to you. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I've always had this like complexity to me where I always feel for the underdog person. 
So even this one kid um, growing up. I have to disagree with that. Tell me more. Because your environmental conditions would form your ability to have compassion for people. Like that that moment when you were in France and there was the abuse and all that stuff. Yeah. That was an impactful moment that incited some change in you to be able to cultivate compassion for that person in a way that some person that was just born compassion or whatever but never had that experience, they wouldn't be able to, maybe they would. But I, I, I think that, all of those novel experiences through the span of a person's life and perhaps, you know, ancestry of their parents and all that stuff, which is is just a continuation of you. It's still environmental conditions. And my lens cultivates a person's capacity for compassion. People can have radical change, but I do feel that my cells and my DNA, like I came in with a ability with language. Like it's the makeup of my brain. Like I have a very colorful vocabulary. Like I'll use words all the time that my partner will be like, what, what is that word? Mm. You're and erudite with your I don't even know what that word so you can tell me. <laughs> <laughs> and I have some humility about it, so. <laughs> Erudite's another word that's on my wall. Uh, erudite essentially is a person that is eloquent with describing their field of expertise. Isn't that ironic? What if I couldn't spell grammar right now? Like that would really just put us under... <laughs> But no, I, I feel like um, there is an ability with language that is in my brain and even in... I think it's erudite. Erud- See, now you're messing up I'm your word that dummy. really impressed me. So now God I'm all worried about it. it. Yeah. Good I job. Mean, probably, if you're in like Mississippi or something like that, it's probably different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maine. Yeah. But ever, ever since I was a kid, I always like, you know, loved English classes and I was the words one. You know, I was horrible at science and amazing at words. That's mm. just forever. Do you think that could have been some type of compensation? The, the feeling, like the the need to be able to express yourself? I think it was a need, but I think it was also a talent. And I think that that's why pe- people who are good with words are healers. Because it's kind of like the person who has like an illness and they keep going to see doctors and they don't know what it is. And it's almost like even if it's the worst illness ever, it, there's like a healing for them just having somebody that knows what it is so that they just know what it is. Yeah. I think that's what healers do with words. Like... For me, I think there's something, especially in my book, like being able to help somebody figure out what they want to do with their career path or my podcast, like anything that I've put out there, me channeling words as a way to make sense of things that people feel, but they don't know how to put the words to and explain and connect with other people about, me being able to give them that with words, I think that makes me a healer. And so I think I've always had that and I've needed that for myself. I think having a sister at a young age who was a drug addict who I really loved, she was very much so like a big sister role in my life. It wasn't like she was cracked out and not there for me. She was mentally ill and had a drug problem and also super cool. And in high school, won best dressed and she was the student body president. You know what I mean? Like Mm. these are the things, these are the complexities for me of like growing up with siblings who had different needs and who softened me into being in an environment where the people I love had setbacks. Do you feel at peace with her transition? Yeah, I feel really connected to my sister. And I had a lot of paranormal experiences when she passed away that I like still kind of haven't. I mean, it's not like I'm trying to make sense of them because I know that things aren't supposed to always make sense, you know? Yeah. And I think there's an ego to trying to make sense of it with my five senses when... I think, like, assuming that my five senses are the only senses or the invisible has nothing, like, I think there's an ego to that. And they might not make sense now, but, like, most things in the book and career and all that stuff, like, perhaps it will make perfect sense in 510, you know, or not. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I mean, think about, like, an atom, like, for, you know, for a long time in history and in science, like, an atom couldn't be split, and then it could, Mm -hmm. and that meant so much more about science. I mean, 
things are always moving. Yeah. But with my sister passing away, yeah. I mean, I believe in reincarnation. So for me, I feel a lot of peace with knowing that maybe she'll be back and maybe I'll be back. I hold death really lightly. I don't want to die. Mm. I don't want to get COVID. Like, you know that. <laughs> <laughs> I'll pass on the experience. Like, no thanks. And if, like, if something happens and I'm going to die, I just hope I don't have any pain and I'm at peace with that. How has your perception of death evolved over your lifespan? Are you at a different place now than you were, I don't know, 10 years ago? I think that I've always believed in reincarnation. So I've always thought that this place that we all are is just temporary and I'm like a visitor. Mm. So I've never, I mean, even when I was like six, I remember my first memory that made me into spirituality was I was six and I would look in the mirror and I would touch my face and I would ask the mirror, who are you? Like, I didn't recognize my body. Wow. Yeah. And, I, and it happened all the time. Like, when I would go to the bathroom, you know, I'd pee and I'd get up as a little kid and I'd look in the mirror and it did the same thing. I'd just kind of stare at myself like, who are you? Mm-hmm. And, I, it, it, yeah, I was confused. I was confused. I didn't recognize me. Yeah, I have a lot of different beliefs about reincarnation. But another thing is that made me believe in it more was I... Um, when I went to school in middle school, I took French as an elective and I was fluent for no reason. Like I, he used to give us a homework assignment, French one. And all these middle schoolers, picture these kids in like seventh grade, you know? And he's like, describe a photograph of yourself. And these kids would like fumble and bumble through this photo, you know, like just sweet. Like it was just awful, which is understandable. It's French one. I just went straight through my picture. I described it with a vocabulary that was as if I was a French person and my Mm. teacher pulled me aside and he said, where'd you learn French? And I said, I never, this is my first class. Wow. So there's a a thing that can happen. I wish I knew what the term was, but it's when you get some type of head, you know, contusion, you get whacked in the head, it can flip a switch in the brain to turn on certain savant like skills, like all of a sudden being able to play Mozart and Bach and or being able to speak another language and which to me, I wish I knew what that term was, but it's okay. The, the idea I've, I've it, heard of it. Yeah, but, but to me, that is perhaps an indication that we already have access to perhaps all of the information in the world. Yeah. It's just a matter of, of kind of like clearing the channels to be able to allow that to express through. Yeah. I don't definitely. know. Yeah, definitely. And, and I mean, even I recently just watched a Netflix uh, special called Surviving Death, and the whole thing was kind of out there for me, even for me. Like, I'm pretty open, but... The last episode of the series was about reincarnation and it was about kids who would describe past life memories and they would talk about um, exact names and places that were verifiable of people who had died and people that they were with. And one kid verified a bunch of photos. He had sworn that he was killed as a little kid in another life. And he was like three years old having night terrors about it. And he verified the face of his mother, the name... I mean, it's real that's, to me. I mean, that's what like they do with like the Dalai Lama and such. Isn't that like the you're like finding Buddha and Buddha's going to pop up someplace? Yeah, it's like there's like a whole process with it. Yeah, exactly. they take the kids to the place and they have the whole the whole like testing ground for it. Yeah. Thank you so much for getting into all of these different. Yeah, you know, I can help people with their career. Tangent, I can talk about tangential this stuff. directions. Yeah. So, winding back more specifically to book stuff, presently, I think now more than ever. I was watching the UFC fights a couple nights ago with with uh, McGregor and Poirier, and uh, it was an interesting thing to see after the fights, the post-fight conference, both of them seemed to not really give a shit, and both of them 
hinted at or actually just overtly said, like, this is just a thing that I do. It's not who I am. Mm-hmm. Whereas I saw pre-COVID, I think most people, I mean, it's my projection, but we're much more bound up with this is who I am, this career, this is what. Mm-hmm. And over the last like year, nine months, I think it's, there's been this kind of like untangling or unbinding of who am I? Yeah. And is this something I'm passionate about? And you know, where do we pivot from here? Like, what do I actually care about? Mm-hmm. And so I feel like your book is, is so perfectly timed. Because I think so many people are going through, I would, I would imagine would have to be the case. I mean, I am with me. I'm like, do I even give a shit about the podcast? Do I yeah. want to write books? Like, yeah. who am I? Is yeah. what I do matter? Yeah. You know, so what a great thing that it's coming out at this time. Yeah, well, I mean, thank you. And I think there's some decades that happen in just weeks, mm-hmm. you know? Totally. And then there's decades that happen to create one week. Yeah. You know, and right now it's like weeks are happening and decades are taking place during them right now. And the amount of progress and options, and I think it's about 15% of job postings in the next um, five years, the titles don't exist yet. So we're moving quick. And that's the thing is our parents' generations, they came into a a world where change was not normal, where you take one job and you stay in it for 30 years and flipping around and changing, that was weird. Yeah. And you would stay in a relationship and not get a divorce, so help you God, you yeah. know? You get a job at the Ford factory and you and get you a go. mortgage and you get a dog and a picket fence it's and a you're like, cool, we're in it. Yeah, now yeah. change is normal. And even if you read the book Sapiens, which I feel like you've probably read yeah, it based it. on you. Yeah, yeah what right. was his argument? Reinvention is the one thing you need to have as a capability in today's world. Yeah. So, I mean, and that was the one thing I took out of it the most was just if you want to thrive, not just survive in the now, you need to be able to reinvent yourself. And so Hmm. what I kind of came up with, and even for me as an entrepreneur, it's really impacted me because there's sometimes things I create with this kind of like selfish desire for leverage where I'm like, oh, I'm going to create this thing and then I'm not going to have to do anything because this thing is working and it's making money and it's thriving or whatever. Sure. But it's like, no, I know reinvention is the new normal and the internet's always going to be changing. Algorithms are going to be changing. Don't count on anything. And the great news about it is that we are dynamic beings and we actually get to be who we are. It doesn't have to be a bad thing. And so I think my book isn't just to say, this is who you are and here's what career you should pick. My book is really this 11-step roadmap to say, let me look at 11 different facets of who you are. The core skill sets that I just talked about are one of 11 different facets. And how do you put these together to make sense of your next move, knowing that there isn't just one title or type of business for you? We're so expansive. We're so different as each of us as people. And, you know, even when I started, I used to kind of cringe when I would watch like a YouTube channel that would be like, the world needs your gift because you're so special. I used to be like, no, we're not. We're all the same. But I realize now we are special. Like everybody does have a little bit of a different imprint of how they do something and it's memorable you know and so I think the game of life and channeling it into a career path is are you willing to experiment enough are you willing to hold your career lightly enough are you willing to calibrate enough are you willing to stare at your cursor on the computer screen enough for you to kind of get that clarity and reflect enough and it's not about being paralyzed and imperfectionism but really in in activation in your career collecting information and honoring who you are and using your career as that vehicle for your self-expression. I love that so much. You know, that's why I call it U-turn. Make a U-turn. Do you know the origination of the term genius? It's like an old Greek term. No, but I would love to know. Genius, that was in with, with the Greeks back in the day, that was everyone had 
genius. Like you, you're a genius. I'm, we're all genius. Yeah. Genius was just those those internal whispers that we're able to hear if we if we listen closely enough. Mm-hmm. But most of us are there's so much static with all of this kind of identity structure. Who we I think I'm supposed to be and what I think I'm supposed to do. But from their perspective, slash, you know, I, th- I, th- I think it makes sense that beneath that, if you do allow the spaciousness to allow that to come through, I think we all have access to that. Mm-hmm. But in a lot of ways, it, it's almost like I don't, I don't know that, that our education system is really structured for genius. No, I think that there's a fine line. I think there's a gift in our education system that people are kind of overlooking as we fight it. Like, I do agree that the education system is somewhat of a box, and sometimes people don't fit in the box. I think there's value in the discipline of like homework, sure. like sitting down and doing work, even if you don't want to do it. That's life. And that's the thing about follow your passion and do what you love. I don't believe in any of those. And I write about those in my book a lot, like all of those tirades that we learned about. It's called work because sometimes it is work. You know, like I believe that if somebody likes what they're doing 80% of the time and they're using their core skill set, they're winning. Mm-hmm. You know, if 20% of the time it sucks or you don't like this thing, you're just working. And there's character to that. There's character building to that. Yeah. So I think the education system, in endowing us with a basic understanding of history, whether people remember it or not, giving you the opportunity to be exposed to that information. And if you want to take it in as a, as a soul here on the planet, taking it in, endowing us with basic vocabulary, you know, so that we don't just kind of hopefully learn it. Endowing us with basic math, like, I think it's it's useful but I do think that there isn't a space yet in the school system to honor kids who are highly creative in a different way. And I think it's more about the structure than it is about the thing itself. Like, I don't think there's a problem with the education system as a whole. I think we need new structures to accommodate other learners. Yeah. I wonder if you were creating the new school system um, and you wanted to break down a few fundamental overarching principles to guide the, the manner in which we learn as opposed to the things that we're learning, what would some overarching principles be for you? Yeah, I would say I would cut the curriculum in half. So I'd be like, how can we take the curriculum we're learning now and cut that time in half? And the other half is where it is like a full track where a kid clearly has talent. Mm. So if anybody was watching me in school, I had a gift with words and I always have. And so I would have loved to be on a storytelling track. Like put me on a track where I go so much deeper learning like the hero's journey, learning storytelling, reading different books, like educate me further on this so I could go with it. And, and again, your, your argument with the book range, it's like show me range around yeah. this track. What are all the different ways of storytelling? What are all the different ways with words? Yeah. And so I would say holding space for what the education system has been and adding a huge amount of space for somebody to go deeper on where they're showing skill. Mm. Mm-hmm. Especially with entrepreneurs. I think just like creativity, innovation, problem solving, some kids are going to be showing signs of that and really honoring them and letting them do that. How does that relate to 37-year-old kids? Like with what do you people mean? changing careers. Oh, yeah. yeah. What would the overarching principles be on, on how to think, not like what to think specifically? I think the biggest thing on how to think is um, kind of just going back to my argument with your skill set. Like really asking yourself at all times, like where am I gifted and what are all the different ways I could channel this gift? Mm. And really taking it upon yourself as an individual to say, this is my core skill set and now I'm going on a quest to figure out all the hundred ways I could be using this skill set so that I've given myself 
the options. Uh, because a lot of people will come to me and be like, I'm stuck. And I'm like, you're not stuck. You just don't have options. Go create options. If you feel stuck right now, it's because you have not created options for yourself. So then the question becomes, how do you create options for yourself? Well, you have conversations, you read books, you learn more information. New information, new people are new options for yourself. I like the idea that it's like, what is it? I'm sure you know the saying. You either have money or time. Mm-hmm. And if you're a person that maybe doesn't have a lot of work right now, but you have a lot of time, it's like there's, there's some physics to it where it creates this spaciousness if you choose to engage it mm-hmm. to learn and read and research and connect and network and like build something new. Yeah. You know, and then sometimes you might be at a point where you have money, you can pay somebody else to do that or whatever. But, mm-hmm. but I've really personally really valued the times in my life that I have had a lot of time and had, a, you know, I've pretty much always had like enough money. It wasn't like overflowing. Yeah. But there was this, this currency in time that I think sometimes we can have too much time and it can feel like anxiety ridden. Yeah. But it's like have, having a reframe of that of like, oh, I have this time that's potential for me to actually in, invest and engage that. But sometimes I think it's like time can be really scary. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It can be really scary. And I don't know. I think the sad thing for me is people don't use their time the way they want to. Mm. I think that's more scary. You mm. know, it's, it's all we have here on this planet. And I, for me, as somebody who believes in reincarnation, at least, it's like the argument is that there's a bunch of souls just waiting to come down. So whether that's true or not, there's something really fun about getting to be here. Mm. And it's all kind of a work of art. Like, you know, I do think that, in, especially in spirituality, they talk about like, we're here to learn lessons. And I'm like, what if we're just here to be here? What if it's just cool? You know, and, and you look at artwork that people are paying millions of dollars for, it will never match an actual sunset at the beach and you get to go see that every day. So it's like, I just believe that we get to be here. And so to me, the biggest travesty is people who are suffering and not realizing where they get to be. And it's not to invalidate their suffering. I think that's part of the human experience. But I would say using your time in a way that feels good for you is everything. And if you don't like what you're doing with your time right now, like accept it. You know, like a recent TED Talk I gave, the question I ask is, what do you know that you wish you didn't? And I love that question because it forces people to really look at what they know that they don't want to know. And, and those are usually the things that hold the keys to their freedom. What do you know that you wish you didn't? I know that I don't enjoy peopling. Like, for example, I've been hired for so many different keynotes. Mm-hmm. And I love, like, getting up there and giving my talk. But afterwards, I'm actually not the most social because I've emptied myself out. Yeah, I feel that. And it's really inconvenient for me in my career because... I literally can't I can't take on as many keynotes as I would like. Like it really is a big line item in my revenue that I have to accept like this doesn't work. I can't take on 50 of these a year. Right. You know? Mm. And I, and it's really convenient. And it, and it translates across my career. Yeah. Not being able to do people all the time. I'm too introverted. The last thing that comes up that as you as you're talking that I thought was just another interesting like tidbit was do you know the story of Van Gogh and his like when he started painting and yeah. any of that stuff? About him, like, charging with a napkin with his painting? No. No, so he only started painting, apparently, from what I read, when he was 27. Mm-hmm. And then I think he died when he was, like, 36 or 37. Yeah. So his painting career was, like... Very short. A short decade. Yeah. And when he started painting, he was, like, you know, scoffed at by painter people. And we went to, to classes. They're, like, you're going to need to, like, start with, like, kids' classes because you're, like, really, really bad. And then eventually he started to kind of adopt and, and believe in his own genius or his own style. 
And it was the fact that there was that, that big, long incubation period of him just experiencing life different than anyone else. And eventually when he did find his spark, mm-hmm. it was like, it was like, it was perfect. Yeah. You know, and it, it was because of that spaciousness of not being a painter that in fact lended itself to him being, you know, one of the most valued painters in the history of humanity. Well, then on that note, as we close <laughs> I will leave you with an anecdote about Picasso for everybody listening. Perfect. Since we're on the Picasso train. Um, okay, so let's just <laughs> pretend that you there's a guy walking into a bar uh-huh. and Picasso's chilling, you know, having a beer or whatever he has. Probably yeah. wine. He's more bougie than mm, beer. That's right. And he's, he's scribbling on a napkin. And the guy comes up to him and the guy says, oh my gosh, it's Picasso. Like, can I just buy this napkin? I'm going to frame it. And he goes, can I buy that from you? And he goes, Picasso goes, yeah, it'll be $100,000. And the guy goes, what? It took you five minutes. And Picasso looks at him. He goes, no, that took me my whole life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that one. Mm-hmm. I've read that one. Value and I your love time. That one. Value your time and trust your journey and trust that your soft skills and who you are is a part of your becoming. And you don't just need to learn tactics and tools. There's something about who you've been for your career. Perfect. Yeah, the end. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you. What a great experience. Yeah, you Thanks know, for having really a really covered a lot of ground. <laughs> We went on a little Mr. Lemony Snicket's Mr. Wild Toad's ride over here. <laughs> Something that I learned from a buddy called Stephen Kotler, who we've done a podcast with him coming up. He's just a brilliant writer and interviewer and all that stuff. I very much value his perspectives on, on conversations in general. One of the things that he said that stood out for me is never ask a question that could be Google searched. Hmm. And that's like always my intention is to just not waste anyone's time with something that you could just press into the Google yeah. and try and, you know, be with parts that are like, okay, this is, we're just not going to find this anywhere else. So well, I appreciate you being open to divulging. Yeah, thank you so much. <laughs> I mean, I feel like if you Google search my book, I just emptied my brain out. Good. Yeah. That was good. Uh, so where should people go? Okay, well, I have a podcast called The U-Turn Podcast. Mm-hmm. You've been on it. Yeah. Y-O-U-Turn. And then that's the name of my book. So you can go to U-Turnbook.com. It's Y-O-U-T-U-R-N book.com. And I have a bundle of free courses that you can get when you upload a screenshot of your receipt there, which is really, really fun. It's like 25 hours of training on money mindset and business and... Amazing. And clarity, yeah. My sense is with anything that you do, you'll probably exceed expectations is my guess. And something that I noticed in the book is it's it's highly readable. And Thank there's like, there's like illustrations, there's like roadmaps and shit. Yeah. So I personally, I haven't read the whole entire book from what I, I gathered going through it. It looks fantastic, so congratulations. Thank you so much. Yeah. Uh, all right, thank you all for tuning in. That's all we got. Over and out. Pow. Thank you all so much for tuning into that podcast. If you enjoyed it, please share it on the internet. Instagram is a fine place. You can tag Ashley Stahl at Ashley Stahl, spelled S-T-A-H-L. You can also tag me at Align Podcast. Good chance we will reshare your post. Also, if y'all are interested in getting yourself out of back pain and learning what the heck could be happening there in the first place, we created the exercise vault of all the different resistance bands exercises you could possibly need or want from the comfort of your home. They can be found at alignpodcast.com slash courses. Go to exercise vault and you will find them. 
and a resistance band truly is all you need to stay in excellent shape from your home, hotel, or in a gym for that matter. It's something that I use on a daily basis. I've got one hanging from my door right beside me here. And um, it's, it's the thing that I've been using most consistently for the longest. So I'm very excited to get to share my recipes of exercises with you guys. And all that can be found at alignpodcast.com slash courses. You got back pain, you got hip impingement, you got ankle impingement, shoulder impingement. Those are the things we get into there and also how to tone those sweet, supple, divine muscles of yours. All that's in the exercise vault, blindpodcast.com slash courses. Thanks so much for tuning in. Enjoy your life. We'll see you next week. Bye.